following audio is from a sermon series called Rebuilding the Ruins. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah begin with the people of God in Babylonian exile due to their unfaithfulness. The God of heaven, who is faithful to his promises, then stirs up and empowers his people to walk anew in faithfulness and rebuild the ruins. For more information about Sacred City Moline, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra 2, 1 through 5, 64 through 70. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, just, just Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sireah, Raelah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Misbar, Bigvay, Reum, and Bahana. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Era, 775. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female ser- servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Um, Can you guys hear me all right? All right. My name is Kevin Knorr. And it is my absolute joy and honor to be bringing you the word this morning. Um, This morning, as you heard, we're continuing our journey through the early stages of Ezra and Nehemiah with a whopping 70 verses of text. And most of these, as you heard, is a census for the numbers and the families of the people who God graciously brings up out of the exile in Babylon. And as he does this, he's fulfilling his promises to do so. Now, I know exactly how much we love reading through long lists of names and numbers and animals through Scripture, but still, this is the task that Pastor Sam set before me this morning, and we are going to need the Holy Spirit's help fully to communicate and to understand the beauty and the importance of this chapter. So before I jump in, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, We profess with the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is breathed out by you and is profitable for your people. Lord, I just ask this morning that your Holy Spirit would be with us, that you would unveil the beauty and the splendor of your plan for your people, and that you would do the work of moving us to worship, and that in the preaching of your word, even difficult texts like this, that it would be all of you, Lord, and that it would be none of me that your people would be built up 
for the purpose of your perfect mission. Amen. The book of Ezra is a historical narrative. And so what that means is that it's a story that's rooted firmly in history, and each chapter advances the story of God. So today's passage is really building on what Sam preached on last week in Ezra chapter 1. What you guys saw was basically the second exodus. You remember the first exodus is led by Moses out of Egypt, and now God's people are once again being led out this time of 50 years of Babylonian captivity. The Babylonian conquest had left Jerusalem and the temple in ruins. There was nothing but a heap of rubble. And all of the skilled and mighty men of valor, skilled tradesmen, the workers who had escaped death, were forced to relocate to Babylon. And so now God is calling his people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And all of this, you remember, happened because God stirred up King Cyrus's spirit to let his people return to their land and rebuild. And because God stirred some of his own people's spirits to walk out of the difficulties of Babylon and to set their face towards a new, uncertain, and even more difficult chapter in their lives. Can you imagine that this morning? All of this uncertainty and hard work that lies ahead of God's people. After 50 years, they had built kind of a life for themselves. And now they're going back home to rebuild everything that is ruined. And it's not really an upgrade. And then in Ezra chapter 2, the census, this, this list of names and the numbers of God's people. But really, what I hope we'll see this morning is that it's a remarkable passage celebrating the deep care that God holds for his covenant people. The chapter details the lists who God called to step out on the faith journey. Because 50 years have passed. At best, the men who were infants at the time when they were swept off to Babylon are well into their middle age years. The people who were old enough to remember Jerusalem and the temple, what it looked like, what it sounded like, what it felt like to be there, are probably long past their traveling age or they've already gone home to be with God. The men that we have listed in this passage have been born and raised on the stories of their fathers for what Jerusalem was like. These men are, are pioneers in a lot of ways who spent their days in Babylon longing for a return home, just waiting for that time when they'd be called back. If you remember, in the exile, the, the king carried off the best and the brightest of all of the people. He took the smartest, he took the strongest, he took the most wise, and the most useful, and the best looking. The Babylonians carried off all of the people who could benefit Babylon and left the rest in Jerusalem to scavenge, to survive, or to die. They took, basically, the culture shapers and the culture makers. They took the hard workers of their day. And there's, there's a kind of beauty in knowing this, because while we see at face value that the Babylonians had their plan to assimilate all the best and brightest that Jerusalem had to offer into their culture, the hand of God is clearly at work in preserving the most important gifts and traits in his people that they'll need 50 years later to rebuild the temple and the holy city. In this passage, God preserves for himself, even in the midst of an exile, these pioneering men longing for a chance to return home and rebuild their places of worship. 
And this is a work that he is still committed to in our lives today. So the big picture question that I'm looking at this morning and hoping to answer is how is God preserving his people in this passage? And then how does that relate to how he's preserving us for his mission today? In my study through Ezra 2, I found three big ways that God works intentionally to preserve his people. First, God protects his sheep perfectly. When we think about protection, usually we're thinking physical safety, health, and well-being. It's easy to say, well, if God really wanted to protect his people, then he will stop bad things from happening. But the exile in return speaks almost differently, completely opposite, in fact, to what we assume. It's so easy for us, isn't it, to assume that God will never let anything bad happen? And some churches even teach that God will never let anything bad happen to his people. But the exile was a brutal event by all accounts. In fact, to understand just how miserable the exile was, how bad it was, the book of Lamentations was written most likely by the prophet Jeremiah detailing exactly how devastating the fall of Jerusalem was. The city was devoted to destruction. Families were torn apart. People were killed in the streets. And the exiles were marched some 500 miles away to a foreign nation where they didn't speak the language, they didn't eat the food, and they didn't know the culture. If this happened in Moline, how many in our secular culture would cry out that God is dead and that a loving God would never let something like this happen? But what we see in Scripture is that the loving God of all creation did let this happen. And in it, we see God's meticulous care for his people, both in his bringing them into and bringing them out of the exile. And this wasn't just a surprise event. God spent decades warning his people through the prophets, turn from your sins and return to right worship of me. And yet, they continued in sin. They continued intentionally to reject the ways of God and to chase after the ways of the nations around them. And as a consequence for their constant rejection, God does an amazing thing. He gives his people exactly what they want. He says, you want to worship other idols? Go, worship other idols. You want to serve other kings? Go, serve other kings that are not from me. They are given over to the nations. They're sent into exile. And that could very well have been the end of it. But in Jeremiah's letter to the exiles, in Jeremiah 21, 29, excuse me, he sets an end date, roughly 70 years. They were still given hope and a mission. Jeremiah writes, seek the welfare of the city, build houses and live in them. Take wives for your children or for your sons and give your sons in marriage. He gives them a mission in the midst of a dark place and the assurance that one day he's going to bring them out of their exile. So what we see is that he's protected their hearts by setting the stage with warnings, time frames, hope for the future, and a mission, but also in preserving his faithful remnant. This list this morning, these 42,000 people who returned from the exile, is the culmination of those people who God had always planned to carry out of the exile. 
This list is those people who wanted to leave and return to a right worship of God. When we look at a long list of names like this in Scripture, we should see the faithfulness of God continually at work in the lives of his chosen people. We should read passages like Ezra 2 as a celebration of God's faithfulness to protect his people physically and spiritually. By his power, he stirred up the hearts and minds of all of the people on this list, all of the servants, all of the men, all of the women. He gave them a desire for something more than the majority culture around them. In a world where money and sex and idol worship were rampant, God worked to preserve their worship habits and to give them a deep longing for something more than what they saw when they looked at the world around them in Babylon, but also a desire to continue carrying out his mission in the midst of a pagan nation. In many ways, Moline, we are living in a Babylon exile today. If Peter, the Apostle Peter, were alive when he wrote 1 Peter 1, where he writes, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, he could very well have included the elect exiles living in Moline, Aledo, Rock Island, Silvis, and Coal Valley. Because similarly, our culture is so wrapped up in money and greed and a culture that says, you do whatever you want, and I'm going to do what I want. As long as what you do doesn't impact what I do, we're good. That's not a Christ-centered worldview. God has given us today the same mission that he gave the exiles. Move into a broken city. Make disciples. Plant a church. Renew those cities and look always towards the day that he calls you home. Instead of the Babylonian majority culture that's me-centered, God calls his people to be on his mission, especially in the broken places around us. So this morning, are you willing to step into the broken places that God has called you into? Not to assimilate to the culture around you, but to move in and to reform and renew the broken spaces around you? To swim against the current, if you will, or are you ignoring the call to leave behind the cultural norm that is essentially a culture of self-infatuation? It'll be hard work, but there's nothing more important. It's for this reason, to do good works for his glory and to advance his kingdom, that God has saved us and that God has protected us. There's work for us to do. The second big lesson that we see in this passage is God's perfect care for his sheep. Not only did he do the work of preserving a remnant of his people and guarding their hearts against the culture around them, but God is the master of the seasons. He knows perfectly when it's time to exile and when it's time to restore. In these dry seasons, he prepares his people every step of the way. Every time that a man was tempted to worship an idol and didn't, Every time that one of the priests or Levites was tempted to neglect his duty or one of the men stirred in their hearts was tempted to stay home. 
God shows his extreme care for his sheep, preparing them, preserving them, and prompting them to action every step of the way. In fact, Psalm 23 speaks nicely to the care that God has for his sheep. David writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This passage shows us that no matter what happens, if we're in the midst of our enemies, God is with us. If we're weary, God is with us, preparing us for rest, and then to move out again on his mission, calling us to action. This passage is a celebration of God's holy and perfect care for every single one of his sheep, every step of the way. Now, someone is probably thinking, that's great, but I don't feel cared for by God in this season. I feel the truth like I'm exiled. But cared for? That's not a reality for me right now. So Luke 21, verses 10 through 19 I'd like to remind you of God's care for his people. Then he, Jesus, said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in varying places famines and pestilence. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your life. Even in the midst of these dark spaces where you feel alone or you feel persecuted or you feel like the world is just closing in around you, I would encourage you to hear that truth. That whether it's a man or a government or a coworker who you feel is, is making you feel isolated or if it's the devil working against you, in spiritual warfare, remember that God has promised, Jesus has promised that in that day, he will give us a mouth and wisdom that none of our adversaries can withstand. He cares so much that he has promised us that he will preserve every hair of our heads, and by our endurance, we will gain eternal life. God cares for his sheep so much that he has ordered trials and struggles in our lives to point us to him. Because he knows that final joy can only and will only be found in him, 
And so he demonstrates that reality time and time again. This is what he's doing in the exile, showing his people in the most poignant way that the wages of their disobedience is death and destruction and being cut off from him as the source of their joy. This is what he does, too, in our lives when we allow something other than God to take his rightful place of worship in our lives. God cares for you too much to let you be a workaholic or to bow to the majority culture or to make an idol out of your children or your job or your hobbies. And so he will strip away everything that stands between you and him and he promises that he will give you a new set of desires. Ezekiel 36, 26 describes the process this way. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God's care is such that he will remove aggressively anything that hardens our hearts, even our hearts themselves, and will replace them with hearts that are soft and are capable of receiving him rightly. And what's even more remarkable is how he chose to restore our flinty hearts. The delicate care of God is such that he brings about the best outcome, no matter how it looks on the outside or to the culture around us. And as you recall this morning, there was another brutal decision made by God in order to bring his people out of their spiritual exile. In Christ's going to the cross, we see the single most brutal event in human history. The Son of Man was, in a sense, exiled and cut off from his people, brutalized and cast down like the temple, but without sin. There was no sin consequence in and of himself. By his perfect obedience and God's perfect care, he's brought out of death and destruction, and he rebuilds the temple for his believers, not out of stone and mortar, but out of flesh and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when you struggle to experience God's care, when you don't feel the reality of his care, remember that he is at work orchestrating all things, seasons of exile and seasons of return for his people and the death and resurrection of his perfect son to restore all things to himself. If he's willing to give up his perfect son, how much more in your seasons of struggling with God is he demonstrating his care for you in removing idols and challenging your growth? Because of Christ's work on the cross, any doubts that we might have had about God being apathetic toward us should disintegrate, should just melt away. He has freed us from the greatest oppressor of sin and death and will care for us perfectly, even through the valley of the shadow of death, even in times of persecution and loneliness. We have nothing to fear. Finally, church, God deploys his people, his sheep, perfectly. There are three implications to this that I want to walk through this morning. First, God knows exactly who and how many his people are. He keeps an even better record in his book than what we have recorded here in Ezra 2. And because of this, he knows perfectly what gifting and how many of each gifting are necessary to rebuild the temple. He stirs the hearts and minds of his people with those corresponding gifts. In this census, there's a vast diversity of the gifting. Verses 36 through 39 talk about the priests. Verse 40, the Levites. Verses 41 and 42, the temple singers. 
verses 43 through 54, the temple servants, and so on. He knows the gifts that he needs to build his church, and he reflects those in this passage for us this morning. Even though these people have no idea how much work is ahead of them, they have no idea what gifting they need to rebuild or what it's going to cost, God knows these things perfectly. He has put each of these men through exactly what experiences they need in order to serve on the mission of God in rebuilding the temple and what we'll see in Nehemiah, the city as well. And it's not just that. It's not just the spiritual giftings that he gives the people. But when they leave, they carry off their, their, their worship implements. And what we see at the end of the chapter today, some families made a free will offering. God knows the cost, even though his people don't. And he stirs in their hearts, too, to provide out of their means that they have received from God through building a life in Babylon to contribute to the work of his mission. Now, I know you guys just spent some time in Ephesians. So in Ephesians 4, Paul talks about how God has provided the different giftings of his church to equip the body for every good work. And that he has given good gifts to the body of his church according to his will, and he wants to leverage them for kingdom purposes, whether it's administration, hospitality, prayer, giving, mercy, whatever it might be. I'd like you to remember, God doesn't give small gifts to be used in small ways. God gives his people great gifts to be used fully for the glory of his kingdom. So the easy question is, how has God gifted me to live and serve in this difficult context? In this, God responds by stirring up our spirits to step out in faith on his mission to engage the broken spaces of our culture and of our society for his ultimate glory. Remember, God knows his sheep so perfectly that he knows how we will respond in any given situation. He knows what pressures and stressors to apply at what times and to what extent in order to challenge and refine us through that process. And he mobilizes us to move out of Babylon, to set our faces toward building his kingdom. But in that context, instead of calling many classes of priests to serve, in our Babylon today, Jesus lives and serves as our great high priest. If you have a Bible, will you turn to Hebrews 4, 14 through 16? Where the writer says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our great high priest knows us so intimately that he has even experienced the temptations and the struggles that come from a life and is able to sympathize with us as a result. He knows even our struggles intimately. And through that deep knowledge and love for his people, he's using those to equip us for every good work by the power of the Holy Spirit. The second and third implication of God's perfect knowledge are found in Ezra 2, 59 and 62. 
The following were those who came up from Telmela, Telharsha, Sherub, Adon, and Emer, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. There's an entire group of people whose hearts were stirred to leave the exile who aren't found in the genealogies. These two implications are incredible. First, some of these men want to serve as priests, but they're barred from the office because their heritage can't be confirmed. A desire to serve in a specific capacity within the church doesn't equal either calling or qualification from God. God doesn't call people out of Babylon and toward his kingdom because he's hurting for recruits and will take anybody with a pulse. But God stirs up the spirits of those whom he has called with the intention of using them the way that he has intended and not necessarily the way that they had intended. So what happens when God says no to the way that you want to serve the church? Do you get angry, shake your fist because God had the audacity to deny you? Or do you humbly submit yourself and your giftings to the will of the Father declaring with Jesus in the garden, yet not my will, but yours be done. The second implication of this text is my favorite from studying this week. Again, some of the people stirred up can't be found in the genealogies. So either God lets some people just be completely forgotten, or there's a chance that God stirs up the spirits of some people who were previously living outside of the covenant community to come into his community to come on to his mission, and to go back into the promised land for his people. This was a missional movement. Discipline was part of it, but it was a missional movement. He stirred up his people outside of his covenant community in order to draw them, to draw people of the nations into right worship of himself. It's very possible that God even used the exile to draw the people of the nations. God not only knows those who are already his sheep, but he knows those whom he has called and predestined to be his sheep. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30 read, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Ezra chapter 2 is so much more than a dry, clinical, boring list of 42,000 people who returned from the exile. This passage is basically a homecoming parade celebrating the beauty of God's care for his people. These men didn't have their names recorded in a, in a boring way. These men were excited to be leaving behind Babylon and turning their faces once again to the promised land, the land promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And like in the days of Abraham and Moses, they're setting out to an uncertain place to fulfill God's will. They are going to the land that God will show them. It won't be easy, and it will be so much hard work but they trust in the work of God to equip them, to watch over them, and to carry out his mission. Why? 
because they trust the words of Scripture that speak to the character of God. They trust in the words of His prophets that promised that God will fulfill His word, provide for His sheep, and draw outsiders to Himself. God inspires the writer to catalog a massive list of those whom He has sovereignly brought together for His purpose, which, as we've said, is about 42,000 people recorded. He wants us to know their names of the people He called out of Babylon to rebuild. He wants us to know who these men are and where they belonged because they were so integral to God's mission to rebuild his temple and his city for his people because he had uniquely called, redeemed, and gifted them for this mission. Can you feel the sweetness of that truth this morning? Every one of God's people matters so much because of the way that he has gifted them and he has mobilized them that he has inspired his writers at several places throughout Scripture to highlight the names and the numbers of his people so that we would remember them thousands of years later. But this isn't the only place that those who returned from the exile are recorded. There is another book in which God has recorded the names of the sheep whom he knows. Revelation 3.5 reads, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. We should rejoice at a passage like Ezra 2 because it's just a sample of the names of God's faithful remnant. It's a sample of the names found in the Lamb's book of life of those people who, in this day, looked forward to the finished work of Jesus Christ, the great high priest, and in our day, those of us who look back at the finished work of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. It is a sampling of those names that Christ confesses to the Father are his. It is a sampling of those names that Christ promises that, because of his work on our behalf, will never be blotted out of the book. Jesus was so stirred in his desire for his glory and the salvation of the world that he came and lived, cared for his people, taught them what right worship looks like, and calls each and every one of his people to believe fully in who he is and what he has done. Jesus has faithfully protected, cared for, and knows his sheep so much that he came to call all of his sheep out of the self-imposed exile of sin and into the glorious, victorious homecoming parade that all who are his are blessed to look into in the new heavens and the new earth. In the light of this truth this morning, in light of the fact that Jesus protects his sheep, that he cares for his sheep, that he knows his sheep deeply, are you counted among them? Is your name found in the Lamb's book of life? Have you heard the voice of the great shepherd and received the eternal life that Jesus has promised? In light of that, Moline, how then will you live? Will you be dedicated to step out of the majority culture and set your face toward the kingdom of God? Or if you're already doing that, to keep doing that, to continue leveraging those gifts for the benefit of the kingdom, for the renewing and the rebuilding of the broken spaces in these cities? As we come to the table this morning, I would encourage you to remember and rejoice in this meal. It is a tangible reminder of the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. 
calling his sheep out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his glorious light. This covenantal meal, the Lord's Supper, celebrates, remembers, and rejoices in the truth that our names are not written in the Lamb's book of life by our own hand or by our own doing, but that the perfect work of our Lord, and that we have not been brought out of Babylon to build God's kingdom by any gifting in and of ourselves, or by any ability in and of ourselves, but by the finished, complete work of Christ on our, on our behalf. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your truth this morning. I thank you for the beauty of the work that you've done, Lord, that you have preserved the names of your people in your book for your glory, God. I ask that as we go from here today, that we would remember to use our giftings in deep and meaningful ways that glorify you, Lord, that you would give us eyes by your Holy Spirit to see the broken spaces in our cities and how we can step into those, Lord, how we can um, start the work of redeeming them for your ultimate glory, Lord, and for our ultimate good. God, I just thank you for the ways that you've preserved the names of your people I just ask, Lord, that you would um, bring those who are yours more closely to you, God, and that you would bring any who are not yet yours to the foot of your throne this morning, God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.